Hello, you are very welcome to the Inside Our Schools podcast, podcast where we put all the current issues around teaching in Irish secondary schools under the microscope. I'm your host, Andrew Phelan. Today marks the first day of mass return to schools in Ireland since before the Christmas break. We have half the primary schools going back and we have six-year students in secondary school going back as well as, of course, all their teachers. Um, today, with figures around 678 uh, and, and not really changing from that, hovering around the 700 mark for the last couple of weeks, we asked the question, uh, is it actually safe to go back to the classrooms um, at this present time? Uh, what measures should be in place in schools to ensure the safety of both the students and the staff and the wider community? Um, and we get students and teachers impressions of their first day back in school uh, in the midst of this uh, pand- pandemic. Uh, and we also discuss uh, zero COVID policy and its possibility in Ireland. We have two teachers joining us for the conversation today. We have Seamus Keane, who is an English, a history and a politics and society teacher. We have Robert Whelan, who is a chemistry and a maths teacher. Flying the flag for the students today, uh, we have a secondary school student from Roscommon, Isabel Flanagan. Olive O'Connor also joins us today, both as a parent of secondary school children, but also in her role as an international healthcare advocate. And she's very, very well placed uh, to give us her expert advice on the current safety levels in and around schools. So we're delighted to have her today. Um, and you can find Olive's extensive research, um, whom she done with Deirdre Gilhawley, and it's, it's in the show notes, and it really is a phenomenal piece of work. So I would encourage everybody to check out the show notes and, and, and have a look at her work. We're also joined tonight by Professor Anthony Staines uh, to get his expert uh, and professional opinion on safety in schools during this pandemic. Anthony is a professor in health systems at the School of Nursing in Dublin City University. And he's also a member of the Independent Scientific Advocacy Group, or ISAG. Um, and actually, ISAG are holding a webinar on Wednesday of this week. I'll include the link to it in the show notes. And it is around school safety. So I would encourage anybody listening to this show to please do go to the show notes. And you can register for the webinar at the link from there. Uh, and it should be very, very interesting indeed. Although it is at 12 and a lot of teachers are teaching. But um, maybe if you have a free class or it could be in your lunchtime. Or I'm sure the video will be up. Um, on it afterwards that you, you can you can check that out um, so look just left to thank all the guests uh, for coming on and and to you the listeners I hope you enjoy the show if you enjoy this podcast uh, please do subscribe it's available on Apple Podcasts on Spotify uh, and on Google Podcasts and you'll be kept up to date with all the latest episodes and all the latest discussions that we are having another reminder before we start um, that all the participants including myself uh are representing their own views uh, and not the views of their trade union or school or workplace or other. It's just their own personal uh, view. Um, so we just want to remind everybody uh, of that. Thank you very much, uh, um, everyone, for coming along. Um, I suppose schools have gone back today. Um, they were, we were closed since Christmas there, and we've gone back today for the first time. Now, special schools were open, have already been open for two weeks um, and uh, students with special needs in mainstream education have been back as well. Um, and I suppose we, we can't really tell yet with those, I suppose with the figures, there's usually a lag between, you can tell uh, what, what effect that has had. But I think we were talking small enough numbers there, but I suppose today is 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 a real kind of turning point where, you know, the, 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 the half the primary schools have gone back uh, and then we've got six years 
gone back into the mix in, in secondary schools. So I've been looking on social media today, um, on Twitter, on Facebook, and and in general, because of my involvement in the trade union, there's still an awful lot of worry around, around is this safe? Um, are schools safe places to be going into work, to be going into learn? Um, and I know it's only one year group, but what is the feeling in the group um, that you've seen in your schools in terms of being a student, in terms of being a teacher? Uh, and uh, is it safe with the figures uh, at the moment? I think today there were 687. So we haven't really dropped in the last couple of weeks um, in terms of the numbers per day. Um, so, I mean, Seamus, do you want to give a teacher's opinion? Uh, yeah, I, I was back today and um, I was in a room. One of my issues is it's even, you know, they talk about a phased return, but it's phased in, all, in the sense that they're letting a certain year groups back. So the six years are back. So I was in a room today, jam packed, 24 six years. Um, and, you know, we speak about, you know, the, the exceptionalism that, 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 that is um, applied to schools is really, really um, frustrating as well. I mean, we, you know, we, we said we do one meter distance, but like you're literally talking about one meter distance where if a student sits in under the desk, um, and doesn't move. Uh, and we know, all of us know here that that's not possible. Um, so I was in a, a room with 24 people, the windows open, it's a relatively new school, but there wasn't a breath of air. Um, I felt very uncomfortable in there today. It was great being back. You could tell the, 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 the students were really excited. Um, they were buzzing. Um, by, by the end of my class, they weren't, they probably a bit bored. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but but like I felt really nervous. The windows were open and because it was such a beautiful day, there was no, and like the windows open and across the corridor in the other room and there was no air coming through. And I just felt really nervous. Um, even when they were speaking, I was just conscious of my mind. I was thinking, okay, they've got face masks, but I know there's going to be some dispersion here, some aerosol dispersion. So we ended up, we were watching King Lear um, and it was kind of quiet then. Um, but yeah, but I felt really uncomfortable. And I think one of the main reasons is, you know, we we kind of do things on a shoestring in this country when it comes to public services. And we've built schools on a shoestring. And one of the reasons that, um, you know, my school, the contractor who built it were Western buildings. It's a relatively new school, but you probably know that Western buildings, one half of our school is condemned. Western buildings built it. They toddled off. Someone signed off on it. And someone came in to do a, um, a survey on the school and we were literally told to get out of that, that a gust of wind or stormy day would have knocked that building down. Um, so now we have a thousand students and they're trying to be crammed into 66 point, you know, 66% of the space we should have. But even if we had the other space, it wouldn't matter because they designed, the, the rooms are so small that you're not, you, you know, you can't, unless you start to break class sizes up, um, you're not going to, you know, 24 is the maximum that we can fit in there with one metre distancing and our shoulder to shoulder. And I just felt very uncomfortable today. Um, How did you get on, Robert, in, in your school today? Yeah, um, it's in many ways glad to be back. Um, I think uh, teaching a maths class today, Within 10 minutes, I said to the students, God, isn't this so much easier than online stuff? Mm. You know, so, I mean, it's everyone is 
is always glad to be back. And the issue, of course, is you know, sort of safety. And as teachers, um, I think on, uh, to one extent that I think we can realise that how good the job the unions have done over the last couple of months you know, to, to, to a huge extent. Because I think when we went into when we went into came out of a sort of lockdown in May June last year, the first lockdown, which I thought was a great uh, moment of national solidarity in this in the in this battle against against the virus, and it is a battle; it's a war, really, and it's, it's it was a time of, of national coming together, and uh, it, it worked. I mean, with people talk about zero COVID, we we were into the we were into the single digits, uh, down to three cases, I think, at, at the end of June. At 22nd of June, four cases. I'm looking at there, 8 of June, nine cases. So we did a phenomenal job. Now, I know our testing scheme may not have picked up everything, but it, it was working. We, we were, we were, we were, we did, as a collective, as a nation, we came together. And I think that. The schools, we, we, we can't, we'd love a scenario whereby we can reopen under zero cases. Realistically, we know it's not possible. Uh, but I think the policy always was, especially when they did a COVID plan, the policy always was that the schools were staying open no matter what um, from September onwards. And that's why the Department of Education never had a plan. They never had a plan B because there was only ever going to be a plan A. Now, nobody saw any signs of variants, but uh, new variants come along um, and it was going to be this sort of jumping to and fro. And in the end, uh, like I go back to the point I made there a moment ago, it came down to the unions to tell the minister uh, who was doing a solid one in early January that, look, this is not really feasible. And the INTO did it too, which I didn't expect. So to that extent, um, and so I'm just getting back to the point, um, the unions really were very, very effective. Um, simply, and it's, it's, you could argue that, you know, perhaps the minister set the unions up to leave them to take the blame or whatever. That's a separate argument altogether. But they at least did their job anyway, which, is, which was all supposed to be done. When Boris Johnson last week announced that all British schools, would, English schools in England would open uh, next week fully, I was sort of concerned because we hadn't released their plan. And to be quite perfectly honest, I thought we were going to do something pretty much the same. And in a way, whilst I think it's very, very risky, very risky that we're back in. You know, I heard a story of shame escape there. I mean, I'm sort of lucky because I'm in a school whereby there's, I'm in a lab, which is, I mean, the room is, is quite big, you know, it's a, it's a, I have two six-year classes for the moment and, you know, the numbers are, you know, are 21 and, and 16 is another. So I'm sort of lucky that way for the next two weeks and the, the window's open, it's very, very uh, well rated. But I'm not, you know, it's not the same for other teachers. And I think we've taken a risk as a nation, the number of cases will definitely go up. Uh, I think but that's almost unavoidable. You can't uh, have 300,000, 350,000 people uh, congregating in very, very small, uh, in, in schools with, uh, without there being a consequence. And I think they know this consequence and I think I think it, there, it, I get the feeling that government policy is get to Easter holidays as soon as possible, where in my opinion, I think it would have been sensible to have the Easter holiday, the two weeks for the Easter holidays for the first two weeks of March. Um, 
just just to just to carry on this this just seems to be everything is just from government appears to be there's no leadership really and the politicians are just reacting to events and it's i know we, to a certain extent we have to um, we don't see the other side. We don't see the parents ringing up, demanding, and there are people who ring up politicians and they shout down the phone to them. When, when you're opening the schools, you know, we saw the crazy stuff that went on over the weekend. But when you start opening schools, um, as we've done, at least it's been done sort of responsibly. It's that sort of makes sense. Um, yeah, I think that there is a big difference in, in between schools. Um, like, I mean, I know, for example, some schools have because they're only bringing back in the six years they're they're moving them to the bigger rooms in the schools like the study halls and, and bigger rooms and they're they're blocking the, the groups rather than having the normal timetable so there's yeah. less moving around but other schools are just timetable as was back in the small rooms maybe they don't have the, the facilities is, or so there is a no, difference no two, schools, no two schools are the same and yeah. the scenario is it is harder for some teachers in some schools and slightly easier uh, yeah. for other teachers where they have the space and if the management of the school can move people around mm. and you know you can have small numbers of students in each room of the school at lunch breaks for instance mm. you know so which you know my school the students don't go home for lunch so they have to stay in the school mm. so um it's i think we've taken we've taken a risk um i think all the eggs are now in the vaccination basket as regards to the politicians and to some extent um Will they, they probably accepted the cost? They, they, they've done it in a way which I would have preferred schools to stay closed, but with more vaccinations, obviously. And um, but they've decided not to to stick with the vaccination plan. So there's nothing we can do about that. And as a consequence, I just hope that you know that they that if they if they've sort of, I mean, I don't like hearing stories that Seamus has given there and me coming in saying that I feel they've done it safe when in his school is completely different. But it's I mean. At least we don't have a scenario. I'm trying to look at a positive side here, whereby we have it. You know, in, in my school, I can go back to my own school again. But the corridors were like, you know, Grafton Street on a, a normal Saturday afternoon uh, during from September to December. You know, uh, where you know, people everywhere. You know, so there was never at least that sort of situation is not happening for the month of March. Uh, yes, but, yeah. but the situation in the classroom can be different, definitely. Yeah, and um, of course you mentioned there. Uh, when we had the cases low and then the unions played their part in, in, in trying to prevent that time when they were going backward with the numbers and in, in astronomical figures. But it wasn't just the, the unions, of course, the, the students played a massive role. And Isabel, I know you, you played a, a big role there. So how, how did you get on today back, first day back? So I think I speak for a lot of students and I say I was excited, but I was also really nervous because um, going to school in December I didn't really want to go because the cases were going up and I seen that schools weren't really safe um, in my school it's quite a small school um, it's kind of the same as Seamus I suppose um, like in each classroom they can hold up to 24 and we don't really have big classrooms that we could go into for the next few weeks for more space um, but even talking to my friends today we are all like really nervous about going in um, because we see that the cases are still high. Um, I don't know, I'm just a bit nervous about going in because I don't want to bring anything home to my family. Um, yeah, like it's, it's a tough one. Like I know that schools do need to reopen at some stage, but I think it's too early at this stage. 
And I think a lot of students feel like we're not being listened to, we're being put in a situation where we need to go into school because we don't want to miss out and stuff. Um, so we're putting our health on the line first. Um, and I think we just don't feel listened to. We have a students union, but I don't think they've really said anything about us going back to school. They were good about the leaving search and stuff like that, but I feel like they could have done more um, when it came to schools reopening and trying to back us up a bit more because I don't think anyone was really talking about the students and how anxious we were about going back. And I think that happens a lot. Students are often left behind because we're so young and it's really disappointing. Yeah, absolutely. And it's probably that nervousness you mentioned a few times because the figures are still high and you know they're higher in some places around the country and lower in others. So again, no more than the schools being different uh, with different, um, I suppose, measures put in place. Uh, then the figures are different in different places. So, Olive, I suppose you, you've done an unbelievable study. Um, it's, uh, I sat down and, and somebody sent it to me and I said, this is a survey of, of parents of what they think, you know, and I just clicked the open and I went, my God, <laughs> it was phenomenal. Um, I wasn't expecting it. It's like 300 and something pages. And I'm, it, it's in the show notes for people who are listening. Um, if you just go to the show notes, you can, you can click on it there and you can see it all for yourself. So, I mean, around these figures, one of the biggest problems I suppose a lot of people have, teachers and students, is are the figures, can they be trusted? I know they can't lie because figures are figures, but what we seem, what the feeling out there is, I suppose, that we're getting an interpretation of those figures rather than the raw data. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. So, yeah, I suppose the first thing I'd like to say is like, um, just on, on the, I suppose, both teachers and Isabel uh, to kind of start with, like, I mean, their experiences matter more than anybody else's. Um, and with younger children, I suppose it's through their parents because they're expressing it that way. Um, you know, like I'm a parent myself of uh, secondary school uh, children. And I just found that consistently many, many teachers and school staff, not just teachers, um, SNAs, SETs, cater, uh, you know, anybody, bus drivers, they just weren't really being listened to. And the students' voices were getting lost. And I suppose kind of going back to the beginning of, of the research, um, Parents United was a group uh, initially with Forgotten Families. It was a group for um, uh, families who had very, very high risk uh, people living in the houses. And they didn't want uh, their young children and the students themselves didn't want to go back to school for the fear of bringing home the virus. And yet the DES and TUSA brought in a rule that actually unless the child themselves is very high risk, you have to go to school and you won't get remote learning, which I think was the most craziest and still is. It still exists, it's still there, that policy. So what happened was a lot, a lot of children didn't actually get that access to remote learning, which is crazy when they keep saying, the DES keeps saying the importance of education. So it didn't it didn't balance out. So that, that kind of, we kind of looked at Forgotten Families really important as, as one cohort and we expanded open thinking to ourselves, hold on, that's one part of us that have a huge issue with, you know, safety and skills. But then there was all these teachers and more parents and, and, and families with no health conditions just genuinely worried. So we started listening and I said, oh, okay, I'm going to run the numbers. Um, I, I want to look at the data myself. Um, so in October or in September, and many people don't know this, Two of my girls actually went back to school. 
So many people think on Twitter that my girls have just kept them home completely. That's not true. Um, my eldest girl is, is quite high risk. Um, so she's leaving search and she made the decision with herself. There was no her going back. But the transmission rate in Mayo was very low in September, as in we'd very, very low cases. And I felt quite secure in sending my girls back with the rule. As soon as I said out, they were out. So they went back and um, things were kind of okay. I was very, very nervous every day, as were they. They came back and then coming into early October, I could see the pattern go up again. And I said, um, out girls. And they were like, but mom, I'm like, out, we're, we're out. As it happened, um, a week later, the first cases in the school started coming about. And it was only then that I realised one of the policies was an issue that I never knew we wouldn't be told if there was a confirmed case in their class. I was never made aware of that and I would never have sent my girls into school had I been aware that that was going to be the situation. But taking all that aside, I've been looking at the data and I was trying to find out the school age children. And I was like, where are the cases for this? It was really difficult. So I found out there was five to 14, but then the 15 to 18 year olds were grouped with adults. And I was like, why are they grouped with adults? You know, this is, they're, they're school age kids. So I suppose kind of looking at that, I kind of first started sharing what I learned. Um, I started looking at outbreaks and I started realizing that there was this kind of, um, Anthony talks to me quite often about reporting bias. It goes two ways. Reporting bias is when uh, people, I suppose, if they're contacted by close contact and what they tell someone, but there's also reporting bias on the on the media press and the government themselves, and they'll report on what they want you to hear. Um, so they weren't kind of saying to you, by the way, this week, outbreaks and clusters in schools were higher than hospitals and nursing homes and residential institutions and meat factories. They didn't put that out there, which would have been relatively important for people to know. Um, they didn't say that there was nearly 300 outbreaks and clusters in the space of four months um, in Ireland, um, and that was in schools um, alone, not even including colleges or creches. They didn't say these things, and this was bothering me, really bothering me. Why, why are other people not sharing this? But it kind of came back to the reporting. So the question you asked me is, can we trust the data? To be honest with you, I don't believe there's any uh, lies or scandal or any of that kind of stuff going on yeah. with data. I think there's actually a huge issue in relation to we don't have enough resources in our public health. And because of that, a lot of the work is outsourced to consultancy firms. Then what you have is the result of someone like me trying to disseminate this report, the school reports that we all rely on. And they actually took me six weeks to disseminate a very, very, what should have been simple report that should have told me the information I needed to find. Um, so what we've been relying on is um, information like the positivity rate in schools is low. That means schools are safe. That's not the way it works. So in relation to, you could say, okay, so there was less transmission, but we had this huge issue with close contact definition. So um, to kind of like, you know, bring in the data and everything else, um, what the first thing that astonished me was that there were um, like 1,113, I have it written here, 1,113 cases before schools reopened. And then we had 13,143 cases after schools reopened. Now that's six months compared to four months. So you have a shorter space of time. It's over a thousand percent increase in cases in school-aged children. 
and the highest increase in cases in all age groups. So I thought, okay, hold on. That's based on cases. That's based on tests. So they weren't being tested. All right. Mm-hmm. So I'm a good one for going on Twitter and listening to people give me the argument. So I thought, what's our next indicator? And hospitalizations was the next one. And what we found was that um, when I looked at all the age groups and looked at the exact same time frames, we found that there was a 161% increase in hospitalizations in school aged children. Not only were they the highest increase across all age groups, all adults had less hospitalizations when schools reopened compared to when they were opened. And all children had the increase. This definitely worried me. Um, so I was looking at this and then I was like, is it right? Is the data right? You know, so I had to go back and all the reports. And what I found was it was really difficult. So we just didn't have um, that. That data is correct, by the way. That comes from the COVID hope. That's HPSE direct data. Um, it's not mine. It's just inter- I just interpreted it, yeah. uh, t- took it out. But what I did find was the hardest part was like we're looking at March to August and then August reopening to December. But we did a lot of different things that happened within there. There were interventions. So from June, we had our restrictions lifted to August. And what we found there that there was increase in cases and very small increase now in cases once restrictions lifted, which was bound to happen. Um, but when you look at from September to midterm break, you can see the increase is exponential in school aged children. But if you were to look from October to December, you can't see that. And something very significant happened at the end of October. Two things. And um, well, kind of three things. In October, we had a lockdown. 26th of October. We also had a midterm break. Close contact trades not only broke down, it was shut down. And then we had a change of the definition of a close contact in a school. So when you add those five things, it's really difficult to determine when school age children cases go down from October to December. It's very, very difficult to determine when all those things are happening at the same time. So I suppose taking all that into account, we have to look at the policy, which is part of the research. And that policy in relation to close contact tracing is why what I initially started out with trying to do with Parents United, I was initially just trying to tell data. And then all of a sudden, these stories and stories and Martina Bro's Alert and Parents Outbreak Group, wow. Um, and they were devalidated. You know, press wouldn't talk about them. They, hold on, just so everyone's aware, the press have not released anything on this report anywhere. But... Martina Bro's group, what they intended to do was to kind of let people know if there were cases. My thing was, is it important for people to know that? Absolutely, because my kids were in school and had there been a case in their class and they weren't made aware of it and they came home to my house where my three-year-old is awake in heart surgery, they could have potentially given that to her without knowing to restrict their movement movements. That's really dangerous policy. Um, and it's something I wouldn't have signed up to had I known about. So we asked alerting parents, would they do a survey? They did. Over 2,800 responded within three days. 1,100 testimonials. And for three days, I cried. And I'm, I'm dead straight when I say I cried. The stories in those testimonials are of fear, stress, anxiety, children going into school, students going into school with pains in their belly, coming home from school, with pains in their belly, with anxiety. Teachers feeling absolutely sick with worry that they were going to give their mother, their father, their children COVID-19. 
not being told about cases, not being told about the secrecy, the word, our top words, secrecy, hidden, and uh, not being told why, right? This is not the way we're supposed to do things. Do I blame public health? No, I don't. I blame government for creating a policy, which I believe was a cost-saving measure so that they wouldn't have to test, they wouldn't have to ring and contact, and they wouldn't have to put the resources in place. But it devastated us. So what became research then became an investigation. And I suppose the biggest thing that we can have in this discussion is we are now open. Our school safe, for me who's done a risk assessment, and I'm well qualified to do risk assessments in my in my work. No, schools are absolutely not safe right now. You will get the major the minority that are lucky like Robert, that you might get that extra little bit of room. But when you take in school buses, when you take in the mobility, when you take in lunch breaks without masks, when you add in all the other activities, yards, no, schools are not safe right now. And then you add two things, community transmission being high, new variants where ECDCs explicitly stated all mitigation needs to be increased across all settings and schools. And yet HBSE policy and departments come out and say, no new, no new mitigations are required. I'm sorry, but I think I trust the WHO and the ECDC when they say something like that. Um, so I would be very, very concerned right now for people in schools. Um, and I, I don't say that to scaremonger. I say it because I want people to be really aware of the fact that you're going into a setting that potentially can, um, you know, have not just cases in the children or the staff, but our wider community, as we've seen before. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree with most, nearly all of what you've said. Um, and it, it, it is not, I think it's important as well, people listen, it's, it's not just, I mean, they're, they're, they would say that it's safe in that, you know, which is not true either, but that children don't get extremely sick from this or, or can't eventually die from it, uh, which of course we know they can now in much smaller numbers, obviously, than elderly population. But it's not just that. I mean, I remember from the very first week of this, um, the reports from China, and I remember, I didn't even know much about it, but I remember reading that they were saying that it's so dangerous because it spreads asymptomatically through children uh, and they bring it through the community. They don't even know they have it and then they bring it home and et cetera and so on. And one thing I've always been kind of arguing at the union is that, like we're talking about the numbers there, like um, I, I've been arguing that maybe the, it, people are getting it in school, they're staying asymptomatic, they're bringing it home, they're giving it to mum and dad who themselves might stay as, asymptomatic. Mum and dad might go to work they might give it to somebody in work, somebody in work gets the symptoms and then all of a sudden the workplace becomes the epicenter of where this uh, outbreak is, rather than the reality probably going back, tracing it back to the school, but they're not testing. Um, and that's probably why, they. And, and even though you've just pointed out clearly there's, there's, there's massive clusters reported in schools, but that's just what's reported. Um, you know, and Seamus, you have a great story on that and I'll bring you in a second to, 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 to comment on that and let people know your story you told in a past podcast. But, um, Anthony, I want to bring you in then. Um, just, uh, is it safe for schools at the moment, in your opinion, with just the six years back? Um, can that be done? And 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 what do you think will happen to wider community um, as a result of? It, schools are no safer than the community around them. That that's I think everyone agrees on that. Mm. Whether they are 
increased risk compared to the community around them is it is in more dispute. But the evidence that exists says that secondary school children do not behave materially different from adults. So for the reasons we wouldn't put 30 adults in a room close together, if we put 30 children in a room close together, we are running a risk. Now we might decide that risk is worth running. So we've brought back the special schools and that's a risk, but quite honestly, it's a risk worth taking because those kids have very particular, very specific needs. And you'll find few people in the sector who think that risk wasn't worth taking. And obviously you're doing everything you can to bring those kids back safely. So what you're trying to do is to maintain social distancing, maintain hygiene, get, uh, every, get people vaccinated as fast as you can, reduce contacts between the kids, but you're still bringing them back. In the same way, if you decide that it's really important to bring kids back to secondary school, then you've got to take the steps required to make that safe. Now, one of the problems has been for school teachers, the guidance from the department has been vague, unclear and under-resourced. So my wife is a school teacher and I've, I've seen some of this um, at first hand. Head teachers are being given a really heavy burden without much in the way of technical support or any other support. And that's just wrong. CDC have brought out quite detailed guidelines for returning schools safely in the, in the last day, I understand. And I think we need to read those and adapt them, accepting that American schools are not the same as Irish schools to our needs and requirements. We, the, one of the things this virus does is it picks out all the weak areas in your society. And we're, we're paying the price for decades of underinvestment in school building. Decades and decades of poor school building design, poor school building maintenance. Primary schools, the issue is a little bit different. It looks like primary school children are a little bit less likely to get this than adults and a lot less likely to get seriously ill. Now some do. We've had a number of cases of this awful inflammatory syndrome that young children get with this virus in Ireland, but it's uncommon. The, the, we don't know because we're not asking what the direction of spread is. So we have scrupulously avoided doing the investigations required to answer the question in our schools, are children spreading to other children? Are children spreading to teachers? Are teachers spreading to children? And are they bringing the virus home? And we've chosen not to ask those questions. And so nobody, nobody knows in Ireland. In some places, it seems the answer to all the questions is yes, the virus spreads between children. Yes, children bring the virus home to their families. Yes, teachers get the virus from children and they give it to children. So in some places, the answer is a definite yes. In other places, it doesn't seem to happen. And we don't really know why. In Ireland, we just happen to breeze mm. because we have chosen quite willfully not to put in the effort to ask these questions and not to put in the effort to teach people 
or to test people. And th th that's a political choice made for reasons which I suggest you address to your local TDs and ask them or ask Norma Foley what the reason for that is. In Ireland, we have what we have done is we have placed all the burden of accommodating to this awful virus on the Irish people. Now, this was always going to be a dreadful virus. It's, it's not as bad as we thought it might be, incidentally, but it was always going to be pretty bad. And the government has a responsibility to make, to do everything they can to control it. And they're just not. They, they have effectively switched off regional public health. And my colleagues in public health are working, in most cases, 14 or 15 hours a day. They all look about four years older than they did a year ago. They're not getting any resources. They're not getting any staff. They have truly awful ICT systems, which haven't improved since the beginning of the pandemic. Other countries have used the time to build decent systems. The all the complex tracing, which means anything that can't be handled with a script on a phone is being passed on to the public health departments and they don't have capacity to do it. They don't have capacity to look after the schools. They don't have capacity to chase cases in the community. And we, that's, that has led us to where we are. We've been talking about controlling the border and controlling ports, uh, seaports and airports since last March. Nothing has actually happened with any of those things. So we don't have a serious plan for controlling the virus. We don't have a serious plan for making schools safe. We know what to do. We make schools safe by making the community safe. If transmission is low in the community, the schools will be pretty safe. If transmission is high in the community, they will not be. They may be slightly safer than the community, but they're probably not. And we, we have really run out of road on this one. Um, you know, the, the, there, is no plan, there is no plan to actually do any of the things I've just talked about. Mm. We have do, there's a, a paper has been published today, report in the Irish Times, or Financial Times rather, which I read about 20 minutes ago, which nearly made me fall off my seat. And they've done a detailed study of the new Brazilian variant, which is the variant that's gone missing in the UK. Mm. They're currently taking the UK apart, trying to find someone who has this variant. And they don't know who this person is or where this person is because they don't have proper quarantine at their borders either. It, it is a moral certainty that the, the, these variants will arrive in our country. This variant spreads at least as fast as the UK variant, which has become the dominant variant in Ireland since the middle of December. So it went from zero to 90% of cases in three weeks. There's no reason why the new, one of the new strains, this one is called P1, could not do the same. There is a new strain emerged in Leeds. There's a new strain emerged in Kent. There's a new strain emerged simultaneously somewhere in the UK and somewhere in Nigeria. All of these pose a threat to our vaccination program. We don't know how much of a threat. All of these pose a threat to reopening anything, schools, shops, small businesses. And 
dealing with that threat is just essential. We, we, we have been messing around with this since last March. We nearly stopped it in June of last year, but we, we pulled back at the last moment under pressure from the hospitality industry, which now I suspect bitterly regrets the choices they made. Um, but we, we, have, we have to get on top of this. We have to do something to protect schools. We can't rebuild schools on a relevant timescale. What we can do is provide resources for filtration of the air in schools, advice on keeping windows open, advice in wearing masks in primary school. WHO and UNICEF have a long detailed policy document about how to do that. What are the issues? Why should you do it? Why should you not do it? And my judgment at the moment will be we should do it, yeah. but there's no plan for it. There's, think, there's no suggestion that's going to happen. So we, we need to take this much more seriously than we have. And if we do that, we can make a choice to run certain risks by doing some things and not doing other things. Yeah. And you know, from my perspective, opening schools is a good risk to take mm. because the benefits to the kids are pretty substantial. But we have to acknowledge it is a risk. I noticed that an effort has stopped saying schools are safe, mm. which is good because mm. they weren't. I think maybe a the, bit of realism is creeping into the discussion. Yeah, I mean, they have said schools, are, they're not saying that anymore. But again, it's funny that you mentioned the, the various variants there and that they've they've really taken off in the new year and we've been closed for that duration and, and now we're back in school. But I suppose that brings on, I'll bring in a second, one second, all of us here, you're indicating to come in there. In this, you can just jump in whenever you like, just <laughs> jump sure. in, it's okay. But uh, I just want to, the, the they, they've said there's no need to change any of the, um, the criteria in schools to stop it spreading, uh, e even with these new variants. So the physical distancing is still one meter rather than two meters like it is everywhere else in the society. Um, I, I think, People in the union had a problem with that as well themselves, I suppose, uh, with the two meter, because I remember we proposed it a few times and people were saying, well, that will close schools, which actually shows you teachers don't want schools to close either. They, they want yeah. the schools to be open. Um, but, you know, at the time we were proposing it, well, no, it doesn't mean schools are closed, but it would probably mean some sort of blended learning, like half in, yeah. half out to make classes smaller yeah. and you could have bigger sizes. The free provision of, of proper medical masks, um, they've said they're going to do that. Now, I'm not sure how many people had them in their school today. Um, very few. I can see shaking but I, I went out and bought 10 masks yesterday, uh, Andrew. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's not so, happening in my school. I doubt it's happening anywhere else. Yeah. And so. the, other thing, the other thing was a redefinition of a close contact, which is what the unions were asking for, too, in terms of if you're in the classroom with somebody for 15 minutes and, and so on, that you would be deemed as... Um, a close contact and they would test the class the entire class uh, and then a uh, guaranteed test turnaround of 24 hours we're probably there so they probably have achieved that i'm not sure at the moment so they probably achieved that one um and then the high risk category is something that people definitely want people to ask about you know just they brought in an, when the school's open now for this phasing in period and it is only for the phasing in period anybody in high risk um it, it was only people at very high risk could could work from home but now people who are in the high risk category um can work from home um so that would be people in the high risk category people over 60 years of age or be um 
teachers who are pregnant and they can stay at home, but it is only for the phasing in period. So once yeah. schools are back open after Easter, it's all in again and everybody back in into the sheds, lock the door and see see what happens. There is a fear, I suppose, amongst teachers and students, I suppose. Um, the, the language they use is we want to open schools and, and I get what you're, what you're saying, Anthony, absolutely about, you know, th- there is some risks that, you, you know, we need to take in terms of schools open, but there is an element of, and the word has been used is that we're guinea pigs here because they are literally saying, let's, let's see what happens. Uh, and it, it just seems that we're being thrown in there. Isabel, you want to come in, do you have your hand up? Um, could I just make a comment about the yeah. one teacher? That is absolute nonsense. That's not happening in my school. I don't think it's happening in any mm. school. I put my arm out and touch someone if I wanted to. Mm. Um, we're packed in like animals, basically, in my school anyways. Um, we have small classrooms. The tables are right beside each other. I measured one day. Um, I was beside my friend in business and I was like, let's see how close we are. 60 centimetres. Mm. So that's why I don't feel safe. And I think it's probably the same with most students yeah. that yeah. Can I can I, I come in on? Yeah, jump in there. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, just a few kind of things, I suppose. Like when we talk about risk, okay. If if in in just say um, my husband's business, right, which is a dry cleaners, and just say like we had an employee and they were like, look, I'm not taking the risk to do that job because that's dealing with a very you know big chemical, and I don't feel confident to do that job. As an employer, we have to take that into account. What they say. And if they're not competent and if they're not able or whatever, for whatever reason, you can only put somebody there that's able to do it. Like, so like myself and Anthony have this conversation an awful lot about, um, you know, taking risks. This is where it comes down to me, right? We're all people, all of us. And some of us are absolutely fine with mixing with other people um, in close proximity with or without masks. Some of us are actually, there's loads of people that are willing to do teachers, SMAs. There are people, but there's a hell of a lot of people that really aren't and this is where it comes down to me it's like for those that really are scared whether you're high risk or not high risk if you are worried about going into an environment where you know there is an actual risk whether it be low or high you should be given the choice because we are in a once in a lifetime pandemic where not only do we have data on COVID-19 so kind of give you a little bit of data okay so this is Deirdre's side of the research by the way Deirdre Galali's and uh, she does all the science and I do all the other side okay so the according to the Princeton study right a ha- done on a half a million people one of the biggest studies in the world transmission rates are similar to adults and children children were more likely to get it from other children their own age than anyone else right this is UK sage data and um, ages uh, 2 to 16 were more likely to be the first person to bring uh, the virus home and more likely to spread it to other in, others in the house than adults, right? And um, we were looking at long COVID. So we look at mortality and death. And obviously, like, that's absolutely devastating and it's the worst outcome. But we have to remember that our people that are getting COVID living with the long-term impact of that. Um, two of my children got swine flu from scale in 2009, something I live to this day to regret. And two of the, or three of them got it, sorry, but two of them have been left with long-term impacts. And when I say long-term impacts, it's not just like, you know, oh, you know, they're a bit fatigued or whatever. No, one of my girls went on, she had to be injected with methotrexate, which is a chemotype drug. Like, this is serious stuff. And I've dealt with this and lived with it. And my girls have lived with this. This is happening today. So 
One in eight children under 12 have, after getting COVID have symptoms after five weeks. One in seven age 12 to 18 have symptoms after five weeks. And one in three, one in three adults after getting COVID will have symptoms for three months or longer, right? This is data from the UK. The equivalent to NEFET have given us <laughs> this information and we don't have this information in Ireland, right? Um, uh, in relation to kind of like looking at masks, I looked at a kind of study the last day because I was on um, BBC Five. Um, a study in the US uh, run by Health Affairs showed that wearing masks slowed the growth rate by 2%. I thought that was fascinating to hear that mm. um, because that can show like the importance of wearing a mask. But when we come down to it and we look at taking a risk in a school, look, the science is simple. Two, min- two meters, wear your mask, avoid crowded environments, right? Then we're going to say go into a classroom. We're going to put 30 in a classroom, 24, whatever. Sometimes primary school, no masks. Sometimes secondary school, not wearing masks until eating lunch, right? We're going to do that. We know scientifically that that's an extra risk. So my thing is, should not um, teachers who are worried or school staff, all school staff should be worried, or parents who are worried about their children uh, or students themselves, should they not be given the choice of especially when community transmission is high and there's so many unknowns with variants, should they not be given the choice to stay at home until a time where they feel safer or that we're given better mitigations because it'll automatically reduce class sizes. Mm. And we know there may be barriers in relation to provision of remote learning. And we definitely know there are children that have to be in school in person and um, we know that not just children with special educational needs, there are children from very, very, um, very, very kind of dangerous situations in their home. Uh, there are children that may not be getting food on the table. Um, and we, we need to ensure they're protected and safeguarded as much as every other child. And I think where we come back to is that word safeguarding, which is what Anthony said. The government have an absolute legal responsibility to prevent the virus, uh, prevent harm and injury to people and to, to from the virus from spreading and to protect people. And right now, I just really do not think they are doing enough to ensure that from a whole national level mm-hmm. in relation to, you know, the way they're going about it. And in relation to skills, they're not doing it either. And um, so my thing is, you know, give people the choice. I don't think anybody should be going into school with a pain in their belly in the morning and a pain in their belly in the evening filled with anxiety, be they a school staff member or a student or a parent at home worrying about their child coming home, worrying. Nobody should feel that type of stress or anxiety. And it shouldn't be something forced on people without Tusla coming in and saying, sorry, you need to deregister off the roll book there and register for homeschooling. It, that shouldn't be the case. Let's, let's allow those who want to go back to go back, but give people the choice who don't want to go back not to. And then all this division of parents and teachers and all that, that will all stop. Immediately it will stop. But we need to issue, support our teachers to do that as well. I think the issue there, Olive, is that the department just won't pay for that. It's as True. simple as that. And True. Everything with the Department of Education comes down to money. And even in times, non-COVID times, it's always, it's always um, you know, management of schools will tell you, they'll, they'll, they'll negotiate a... They'll give to two decimal places what the number of teachers uh, schools is entitled to, that sort of stuff when it comes out of money. Yeah. Just, just with, with the lowest spending on education in the OECD, like it's, that's a oh, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. And yeah. what I will say is 
um, on like not I'll, I'll, I'll not cutting in. I just want to kind of say on this one, my girls from September and uh, my eldest girls now because they're not under two slip. Uh, they're sixteen, they're seventeen and eighteen. Uh, they've been getting remote learning every day from their school. They just log into Microsoft Teams. The teacher logs them in. They're in their class. They do Nicole's doing applied maths and everything. It's amazing <laughs> um, to see what she's able to do from her bedroom. They are able to do it, and that's fine for for some secondary school kids, not necessarily for primary school children. But I completely and utterly agree. The department can do this just like that. They can do it if they want to. They can try, but they're not even trying. And that scares the crap out of me. Yeah, no, there's definitely an element of, and I've said a few times, is you, there's a lot of blaming the virus going on rather than blaming the politicians. You know, I mean, I was looking at just, I put, I put a post up myself uh, on Facebook and I, and I know you can get into the arguments of New Zealand and Ireland and the differences and the population and the sparsity and all the rest of it. But the reality is like there's two different approaches. There's the zero COVID approach that they've taken and um, where they're, they're not going through the rolling lockdowns. They're having short focused lockdowns in, in areas where they find cases. Um, but, you know, the deaths are, I think that when I looked at it a couple of days ago, it was 26 compared to over 4,000 here. So, I mean, that, that's just I don't care what the differences in the country are that's a huge difference you know and I, I know um, Anthony you're a member of the um, independent scientific advocacy group isn't it and, and you're you're a zero COVID so you're advocating a zero COVID policy isn't it? yeah I mean we're we what we would say is this if we try this at the very least we will bring the numbers of cases down sharply hmm. Because if you think, you know, to get to zero, you have to go through not very many. What's the downside in bringing the number of cases down sharply? Because mm. we can't see one. Mm. Um, I've just sent out a link which will make you weep, which is a, a ranking from Bloomberg about how different countries are doing managing COVID-19. We're doing very slightly better than Bangladesh. And this is in terms of disease and impact. So it's not just the number of cases, it's actually how our economy is being affected. The people, the company, countries doing best are uh, New Zealand and Australia. Now they haven't got all of the countries that are controlling this effectively on the list, but Vietnam is not doing badly. Laos is not doing badly. Singapore is doing very well. Singapore is a land border with Malaysia across which every day thousands of people go to work and Singapore wouldn't function if people couldn't cross that border, they would close. So they've managed it. Now, there's nothing magic about being from Singapore or being from Australia. It, it isn't to do with the wide open spaces and chasing sheep around sheep farms that gives you protection from COVID. Mm. It's political will. It is. And that, that, that has been lacking. I mean, Stephen Donnelly said this evening that zero COVID means a two kilometer restriction and keeping the schools closed till September. Yeah, I saw that, yeah. Mm. But, uh, can, I, can I just pop in there? Uh, yeah. On that, um, I think this has been a Europe Western approach has been absolutely disastrous. Now I'm not excusing their policy at all under any circumstance. And I was just looking at the list there on the link that, uh, Anthony put up, I think the first country, EU country, Denmark, is 11th, France yeah. is 19th, and they're all way down the list. And you have the uh, the Asian countries, the, uh, the, uh, and 
Australia, New Zealand, up near the top, which is no surprise. But right from the start, this has been the case. I mean, when Italy was going, was going mad this time last year, uh, locking down everywhere, uh, we were, and, and there was a link put up on Twitter there yesterday, and I'm not criticising Tony Hoolan at all in any stretch of imagination here, because this was his professional opinion. We may have one, it was along the lines of, we may have one or two cases over the coming months, and we'll manage them. It was sort of like, yeah, there's a problem, but we'll deal with it. We'll deal with the, 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 you know, the, the, issue, the issue when it arrives. And if you go across, right across the pandemic in Europe, um, uh, the UK were holding football matches, Cheltenham. No sense of seriousness at all. It was like as if we've got superior healthcare systems. We're not Vietnam. We're not Laos. You know, you know, once, when it gets here, we'll deal with it. We'll deal with it then, you know. But even up until recently, I mean, uh, France uh, kept schools open in, Janu- in, in January and February. And we're closing down, so telling everyone basically to be, in, be at home at 6 p.m. Now, I don't know how we would have survived under that, uh, had, under that situation. Uh, you come to Angela Merkel, we saw in December, she had to plead with, uh, with you know, state politicians, state leaders to close for two days schools. Mm. So this is a, more of a, a sort of generic problem in Europe. And Europe, and look at the vaccination rollout. I mean, what an advert for Brexit in some way, and God knows they need something to, in that sort of circumstance. It's been, a, it's been, Europe, Europe's, I mean, the EU's, um, uh, total uh, response to this has been lacking and we have effectively been one of the worst EU countries and if you look at those countries um, I hate to say it but those countries that have done the worst ourselves, the United States and where they had a president who didn't even believe there was a virus or didn't care one or the other uh, UK, uh, France those countries are heavily so I'm not bring this into sort of geopolitical sort of uh, argument but they're very very uh, their economies, which are heavily sort of uh, right wing sort of uh, environments. So, you know, it, it does come down to political choice. We made loads of choices that we didn't, we, we could have, you know, we made mo- loads of choices which made the situation worse. I mean, we come back to what Anthony said earlier on about the, um, the variants that were coming out in, in December. When Boris Johnson was closing down Christmas on the, on the 18th up to December, uh, me and loads of others. Uh, on Twitter, were almost pleading with the minister to close down on the 21st and 22nd of December schools when nothing was going to happen anyway. It was on a Monday and Tuesday when they're so excited they don't want to do anything, you know. And it was what was the reason given? Oh well, these dates are set, you know, childcare, and it was like, what the hell? Like, I mean, everything society stayed open till the 31st of December. It stayed up until the, I, I was I, I left. I once to went to the city centre of Dublin and I was totally shocked at what I saw. Yeah. Totally shocked at what I saw. This Lewis was just jammed to capacity. I, I got on to Lewis at one stop and I got off it at the next stop. And I never I never take tickets, quite frankly, from that experience. But there was no no it was like a normal Christmas. And now a, a lot of the politicians have sort of taken responsibility for that. But my issue is that when the variants were being announced, we were we were taking the same sort of attitude, yeah. Ash or whatever. It'll be grand, you know. On the 11th of like, January, the highest deal. cases in the world per million, and yeah. they and, 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 and radio I'll finish up here. We we had headlines in the media here. Six in early January, six thousand cases by 
mm. by the by next week. You know, and we and, and we're going in this sort of case, this unbelievable denial whereby we're extending the holidays. We're we're close. We're not closing the schools now. We're extending the holidays. What's the term? It's like if you know. Easter, I'm sorry, Christmas had come early in 2021 <laughs> for students and teachers. It was and really, really dishonest uh, reporting from politicians treating the people of this country in a very, very, it's, 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 they have yeah. a responsibility to be honest with us and they haven't been. And that's, yeah, and I completely agree. But, but you know, look, to, to, to bring it back to schools, Robert, to bring it back to schools, I mean, and, and, and I'm staying on your point, but if you go back to the cases were low and then they, you know they decided to open up and then the cases just exploded um but yet again i go back to blaming the virus but when when it comes to schools reopening and you know this, i remember the special needs um schools and, and special needs students were they were trying to force these schools open now probably rightly you know they they, they needed the, the education they needed to get in they probably i i've lived my whole life my sister's high special needs and she's actually in a residential um such are her needs um but so i've lived with her so i understand exactly what those parents were going through at that time I, i've seen my my mum and my dad live with it and i've lived with it um so it is you know it's it, it can be very very demanding but yet the blame was on the teachers it was on you don't want to open the schools you don't want to keep things shut and then you you know and, and same now with, with the six years and you you know if you put up any sort of objection, there's a there's a feeling with teachers that they're just going to ram a train over you, and you're going to be to blame for everything. But the deal always was keep the community transmission low, and we keep teaching. Um, yeah. And the blame for that then lies has to lie with the, the government for opening up everything, and they are the ones by their policy who denied special needs students that education because teachers have been teaching special needs students for decades, hundreds of years, and we've always done it. Um, and they, by their policy, have um, have denied them that, and they're denying a lot of the students right now who are not in schools. Um, per permission to go back in because it's not just not safe and the numbers can yeah. go up. Um, Anthony, I know you're 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 you've got another appointment there, so you're, uh, yeah, you're, you're going to shoot. So um, you you've got a webinar tomorrow that you'd like people to attend, isn't we're, it? Yeah, we're we're running a webinar on Wednesday. Wednesday. So it'll be in the ISAC COVID nineteen um, Twitter page, and one of the stars will be a woman who may look familiar. You can wave, Olive. Uh, <laughs> But yeah. it is about schools. Okay. So if, if you could spread the word about it, that would be appreciated. No, no, I'll, I'll put the I'll put it in the the show notes as well, and I'll tag yeah. you on the the social media and and all the rest of it. So, yeah. yeah. Thank you very much indeed, Andrew. Lovely Thank, to talk with you. you Thanks, too. Anthony. Thanks, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thanks bye -bye. A lot. Bye -bye. Do you mind if I get in there, Andrew? Yeah. No. Go ahead, Seamus. Yeah. Yeah, no, just a few points that I I I, I think are quite relevant. I mean, um, you, you know, we're speaking about. Um, how you know how government have to take responsibility here? But I think what we don't do great in this country is politicians taking responsibility. Um, we have we have a history of inquiries. Essentially, I mean, it's interesting looking at Sarkozy getting a three-year jail sentence today, and then you look in this country, and 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 I, I presume they know that somewhere down the road there'll be an inquiry. We will have failed those children that you're talking about, Olive, the ones who might want to stay at home. Um, um, uh, you know, not a facilitating education for them. I, I, they know there'll be an inquiry and, and there'll be no yeah. criminal negligence. No one will be found. Someone will take the blame and it'll be 
um, it'll be just yeah. swept under the carpet. There was a few, um, I thought, Isabel, that was a great point you made about being squashed in um, in classrooms. And it just kind of, when I think about how the department, um, first of all, tried to deal with um, social distancing in schools, like it got so petty that there was an argument between the department and the unions on whether or not a metre would be measured from shoulder to shoulder or uh, head to head. Yeah. Yeah. The department wanted head to head and it was just, they knew they just wanted, how can we squash as many of them as possible into those rooms? Um, and then I also just, Isabel, I thought it was a great point you made too about the student voice. I mean, the student union, ISSU got a huge platform um, on, on the Leaving Cert and I'm surprised as you are that they haven't, you know, kind of built on that to maybe provide a platform or at least a facility through a survey to get feedback yeah. from students. Um, yeah, and look, there was one other point I just wanted to make. I, I thought Anthony might have known this. Like a year ago, I, 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 I started to look into this. And I remember in the UK, there was some controversy over th their pandemic plan or something, that they'd done something negligent in their pandemic plan. And I, I thought, hang on, what's that? And I realised... Like Ireland has a national pandemic influenza plan from 2007 um, and where they talk about preparing for the next pandemic, stockpiling half a million surgical masks, etc. And yet we still were confronted with the situation in nursing homes um, last year where yeah. and in hospitals where there was no there, there, there was no PPE. And I just like I, I'd never heard of that. And no journalist was, has ever it mentioned it. There wasn't even no PPE, Seamus. They came out and actually said, no, visitors can still go to nursing homes. Now, this was when everybody knew there was a pandemic. The WHO had not officially announced it, but everybody knew it was there. I was one of the first people on Twitter myself, like, ah, stay at home. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yet when nursing homes came out and said, we're going to stop visitors coming in, the government and the emergency team, they said, no, it's okay. It's okay, allow visitors in. At that moment, that was the first moment for me where every single alarm bell went off in my head when I'm thinking, even if you don't know, even if it's not true, even if it's only temporary, would you not do it just in case? You know, it yeah. is a little spark as uh, Thomas Ryan from ISAG, you know, talks about, you know, the flood and the fire, you know, you don't let a fire, you don't let, let a little fire stay in your house just because it's little. Because you know what's going to get big, you're going to put that fire out, and mm. um, and and that to me was the nursing home at the beginning. That was really frightening for me. Mm -hmm. Um, so when I think of everything you're all talking about, like first of all, the, if I was to ask for three things to change, I'd look at policy. Right, we have a lot of change of policy. We and policy is not the same as what's happening in reality. So you can say we're doing one meters. You can say you're doing this, but the reality, as Isabel and you guys, you guys will rightly say, is not always the same um, as to what it is. But if there were policies to change, the first thing I would say is close contact tracing that or close contact definition. Look, ECDC, they have it right there. Very, very clear. You're in a classroom. You're a close contact. Out. Right. That's immediately out. And. I would also extend that and say if you're a close contact of a close contact, such as a sibling, get out too, right? Because you're living in the same house. Mm -hmm. which makes sense. So that's a very big one. Um, and that also aligns with, you know, informing people of what the policies are. The second one I would say is um, national policy with local autonomy. 
So, you know, bring in one good, strong policy that would suit, you know, like an overall, how would you say, right of this case is in your school. But the local autonomy should stay with the principals and with the board. If they feel the school is just too unsafe for them to work in at any time, they should be able to make that executive decision to say, hold on a second. Uh, without reprimanding, without being reprimanded or without being getting a phone call. Like Tarbot. Yeah, yeah. They should literally be allowed to say, okay, sorry, we're going to close for a day or two. They should be well able to tell their community, by the way, this case is in our school. We're just letting you know so you're all alert and you can all protect yourselves and, and mind yourselves a little bit more. That's good preventative health. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, the third thing I would say would regard policy would be um, we, we need to look at the, you know, uh, who the choice the choice for people to go to school or not to go to school it's a once in a lifetime pandemic right if i don't want my kid to go to school because i'm genuinely scared of the risk to their health because i've reason to because the mitigation isn't there i should be able to keep my child out get access to some sort so even if it's not through the school then let the department fund homeschooling like there's a lot of low-income families cannot afford the, the funds for homeschooling, you know? So whatever it is, give us a choice. And the last thing I would say is we need our public messaging to change. Oh dear goodness. If I hear them anymore say, children, and it was said tonight, we cannot have this message that children are low risk, that children don't transmit. We have to change this message and uh, not change it, call that message. All people, all ages, can transmit, can contract, can get sick, and yes, they can die. When you change that message, people will change their behavior. We know this. Um, but most importantly for you guys, you know, you need to be safe. Um, all of you, like, I don't, the thought of a staff going in with a pain in their belly, scared, going home scared, the thought of a child or a student going scared, but the thought and the worst thought is if any of them getting sick, bringing it home, dying, a child giving that to the parent or a sibling from school and the guilt and the grief they might be left with or the same for a school staff 100 percent, that should not that should not be put on anybody to do to go through that and that can i ask you something olive yeah sorry just that report that that you have i i know you say the messenger needs to change um have you i mean are, are nefit aware i presume you sent that report to nefit are sent it individually to Nolan and, and it, Glenn. And this is really important. In November, I had, um, I, I, I did a, a very, 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 <laughs> you want to read that one, it's easier than the big one. But I did a very short version in November of that. It was a very high level um, report. And at the time it was mainly focusing on high risk and very high risk that there shouldn't be two lists anyway. That's the first thing. Uh, if, you're, if your doctor says you're high risk, your doctor says you're high risk. Your doctor says you shouldn't go to work. That should be enough. There shouldn't be none of this crap of, oh, you don't fit this. I have never in my life ever heard patients tell me I wish I was sicker. Have you, can you imagine hearing that from people? I wish I was sicker so I wouldn't have to. I've never heard that in my life because they've created this massive division between very high risk and high risk and doctors trying to fit them into boxes. So the report went in November. That report was reviewed by Anthony Staines and by Steve McMahon, the Irish Patients Association. They reviewed it, they signed off on it, and that was sent to HICWA, the HSE. It was sent to the HPSE. It was sent to the CMO. It was sent to NEFA. It was sent to everywhere. 
right? Anywhere I could send it to, it went. And we basically got the usual non-answers, you know? So it was like, um, oh, thank you so much. We understand this, but, um, you know, schools are safe. And uh, we will look into it. That was in November. In that had the data, it showed the exponential growth in hospitalizations and cases in children. It showed um, the actual, the, the, the rights, the human rights of children, that you cannot take away their education because they're, they, they've every right not to go to school, but you can't remove it from them just because you think it's the right thing to do. That report went in, they all have that. Nothing has been done about it. I'm not sitting back taking this. Parents United are not sitting back taking this. Um, we're not sitting back saying this is acceptable. And just because the press aren't taking it, right? Just because the press won't take it doesn't mean nothing can't be done about it. Mm. You know, it's power of the people and Parents United is not just parents, we're caregivers, we're guardians, we're children, we're students, we're teachers, we're school staff, we're bus drivers, we're cleaners. We're all of that together. That's what we are as, as a collective. Um, we are alerting parents, the outbreaks group, Martinez Bro team, amazing team there. Isabel has been outstanding. She did all the surveys on Instagram for all the students' voices. Um, she has just can been. I thank Isabel for her comments about Kenny as well, by the way. Because <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I played from Twitter. So uh, that was very, very appreciative. But can you, can you tell, tell the listeners that one, Robert? Yeah. They might be aware. Yeah, Isabel put uh, Pat Kenny um, read out a sort of what seemed like a made up text. Uh, from some guy in Carlo, uh, Paul or whatever his name was, saying basically put all the teachers on the on the pup, you know. And, <laughs> and what did you say, Isabel? So Isabel came in. You should ask Isabel, and she can she yeah. can. Uh, yeah. So basically, before I was going on the radio, like I was on the line and I was listening into the radio, and he had called out a COVID denier comment. So I was already pretty peed off. I was like, oh God, <laughs> what is he doing calling that stuff out? So I did my interview. My interview was over. But then he called out that comment and it really annoys me when people say those things about teachers um, and I don't suck up to teachers. But um, my teachers have all been brilliant and even my sisters, uh, she's in primary school, St. Anne's in Castlebury, brilliant school. Um, her teacher has been amazing. So it really annoyed me when they called out the comment. Um, so he called out the comment and I just said, um, can I jump in there? And I said, cop on to the commenter. And I was like, it's ridiculous calling out comments like that. And his response was, that's what we do. Yeah, like, yeah, I remember that actually. Yeah. Well done. Well done. Um, but they probably weren't expecting I'll, that, you know. I'll retweet, I'll, re I'll retweet that later on, Andrew. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and we haven't heard it in a while. It's worth hearing. Just while it's yeah. fresh in people's memories, because I've just been talking about her her research there again. Just want to remind people that it will be in the, the show notes. So if you if you just go to the show notes there, you'll see it there. And I, I put up the Bloomberg article that Anthony was talking about. So I suppose we're going to wrap this up quickly. I suppose with uh, where do we go from here? I suppose the question for you, Olive, with the, with the figures is, where do you see us going? Uh, now with the figures do you, like is, is it possible i think it is now i'm no health professional uh, but um i think it's very possible that um we're going to see figures go up and schools are going to be closed again um, yeah. I, I, that's, I, that's, and how soon do you see that happening i know you've studied the figures a lot in terms yeah. of uh, you, you you seem to be good at predicting these uh outbreaks and stuff but yeah. 
I, I think um, it's going to be hard in um, like, you know, they, I don't like when they put like an arbitrary date like that, like the 15th. Yeah. If it's the 15th where they're going to actually not do anything and just on the 15th, they're going to assess. Mm. <laughs> that's fine. But if it's on the 15th where people come back, that's a very, very big problem mm. because you have to always put a date so people can prepare. But that date, in my opinion, should be based on when we get to this number of cases, yeah. two weeks after that, we'll reopen. That's mm. how you pick a date in, in my opinion. Okay. Mm. So what I've, what we've kind of seen is um, just from the patterns, like from September up to midterm, for example, you'll see like for the first two to three weeks, a little bit slow. And then all of a sudden you'll see a, a very, very, very quick growth. Um, what I kind of predict is like by the 15th of March, you're not going to have the numbers to, how would you say, make them say, we're not going to open. Mm. You're not going to see that. It's not going to be, it, it's too short a time frame. And I, I think they're very aware of this. They, they know that. Um, I would say you'd be looking at maybe three to four weeks before you start seeing anything. And then definitely between six to seven weeks and you'd probably more than likely see somebody calling another lockdown, like mm. a proper full on lockdown again because that's what we saw um from september to october we saw on i think it was the 4th of october nefit called the lockdown the government said no for two weeks and then they brought in a few little you know level three and a half or whatever they were mm-hmm. called and then they eventually agreed they brought in a midterm at the exact same time of that so you couldn't predict the data it was impossible to do that mm-hmm. then at christmas you could see the exact same pattern what people don't know and what they need to know is there were 14,319 cases in children 0 to 18 last year. This year, up until last week, there's 14,238 cases in children. That's astonishing. Zero it's the same number in, 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 a, in a few weeks than in the entire year last year. Eight weeks. And why don't we know about this? Why, why is nobody talking about this? Why are NEPED not saying this? That's a big question mm. I have. And it's something that really frustrates me because this is the conversation that we need right now immediately to have every day. They should tell us the cases in adults are and the cases in teachers are and the cases in students are. Mm. Right. We need this because we're reliant on that information. Now, regardless of whether they got it in the school, because some teacher may get it, but it's impossible to link it back to the school because the child may have been asymptomatic, etc. So you know, yeah. yeah, in the school report, though, it should say. In the yeah. school report, by the way, so everybody's clear on this. Mm. They don't mass test, right? So that, that's a definitive. They don't. Mm. They bulk or they target test, right? Mm. Mass testing is going out, just say, to a hospital and saying, we're going to test them every week, regardless if their symptoms or not. Uh, bulk or targeted testing, which are kind of in around the same, is we're going to pick a definition and we're going to say, OK, we're going to these are the people we're going to test. So that's your close contact definition. Exactly. And they might test loads of people. It doesn't mean they're not doing that, but it's not mass testing. The second thing is in the school reports, you know, where it says uh, facilities tested. They're your index cases. They're the first person who was infectious. Um, so they're not necessarily, they are a school, but they're it's iffy. <laughs> and the last thing is for people to be very aware um, that the test, the results you see are only close contacts. So they're not inclusive um, of what's on the outbreaks mm. reports, where there's 1,134 cases on that report associated mm. with schools. So 
there's a lot of different things we're not sure of and we, we need clarity. We Do I think we, we're going to go into a surge? Yeah, I think mm-hmm. within six to seven weeks, if not earlier, and depends on the mental testing and the results we get back, um, I would not be sending my kids back and I'm not sending my kids back this time at all. No way. You see, that's the problem is because they've sent us in to see what happens. You're going to pick essentially guinea pigs and the danger now is if numbers go up and keep climbing then eventually of course they're going to say look we've looked at the figures and they're climbing kind of quite rapidly so what we're going to do is we're going to close schools again but at that stage how many students have brought it home to their families how many students have got it? how many teachers have gotten it you know um and yes there there is I suppose teachers are listening to this and there is an element absolutely of in terms of the leave insert and all the stuff that happened and the media coming down. As I said earlier on, teachers feel sometimes like a train has after been driven over them over the last few weeks. And that might be why you're not hearing big outcries at the moment, because they literally feel if they open their mouths, they're, 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 going to be, they're rammed over. So, but I think we have to find the energy from somewhere. Bring in there, we have to bring the energy from somewhere to say, if these figures are rising at all, now I know the unions have agreed to meet at every point along the way. So they'll be meeting again now at the beginning of, um, yeah. when before the fifth years go back and then again around Easter time. So it's really have to, we have to get the courage from somewhere. If these numbers are going up to say, there's no way we can continue just, this. You just, know? On, just on that, Andrew, sorry for interrupting. Um, no, okay, go ahead. Look, there's a serious uh, anti-teacher problem in this country long before COVID ever came along. And the media tap into this big time. And no matter what we say, or the representatives of the union say, um, and in some ways I've always, I've always wondered about the benefit of the unions actually talking to the likes of certain news, news outlets in particular, news talk. Uh, perhaps that will change now that they're sold, but I doubt it, and the presenters will still be the same. Um, once the schools are open, I don't think they'll be closing. Uh, unless, I mean, I said to her, when, when we were at two, 300 cases, I said to a colleague of mine, teacher in my own school, I said we could get to 2,000 cases and they won't close the school, schools. Well, I tell you, we wanted to open them at six, 7,000 cases in January. That was the policy until the INTO and the, and the ACI said no. So I think if, if the cases do come up, they'll blame it on absolutely, and they'll blame it on the, the riot on the weekend that they, that they called. They'll blame it. St. Patrick's weekend may cause yeah. uh, people to cluster together. There were huge numbers in the Phoenix Park yesterday. Uh, they're closing down parks and they're all going to the one park. It's totally illogical. So um, I think I think we're here to the end. That's my own personal opinion. You asked, just answering your question. Yeah. And unless, of course, it does go crazy, which um, is, all, is, of course, a possibility, but we'll have to wait and see. We'll have to wait and see. That's wrong. It's sad because mm. I I'm of the thinking that you know what you could actually keep and CDC are very clear on this. They have a really good risk assessment uh, risk assessment for threshold. You can actually keep schools open when community transmission is high, but there's very very specific rules mm. to be able to do that, and their rules are very clear. If mm. you're gonna keep your school open when community transmission is high and or new variants, there needs to be at all times with all ages, two metres apart, masks, 
brilliant and excellent ventilation. And at all times, that, that robust re retrospective contact tracing and testing. Mm. The CDC are extremely clear, but the indicators are always based on what happens locally, not the positivity rate within the mm. school, but what's happening around it. So my thing is, there's a lot of teachers and staff that are happy to work throughout this and are happy to, they, they understand the risks and they're willing to take the risk. And that's mm. okay. There's a lot of students who are happy to take the risk and willing to take the risk. But we have a very, very big cohort in the middle that don't actually know the risk because Netflix and the government are not telling people about that risk. And that's what actually scares the real crap out of me mm. is people not being aware. They want to hear what they're being told. They want to hear it so badly. They're mm. fed up being at home or they're very stressed or you know, there might be a risk of losing their job because, you know, but that's government's problem. Mm. They need to support people. So my well, thing is, can well, schools stay open? Yes, they can. Should they if the mitigation isn't there? No. But the thing is, um, and I agree, but the, the CDC uh, guidelines, the ASTI, I know for a fact, we have, we're sitting on a ballot. We have a ballot that members passed back in October with a lot of those demands in it. Uh, not the new ones. Very no, yeah, yeah. Not, not, not the most up-to-date ones, but what I mean is they're very similar to yeah. uh, those ones. Because it, look, the knowledge of how to defeat this is, has been, everyone knows it. Yeah. It's, it's, not, it's not rocket science uh, or even medical science, but it's 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 very simple. Um, and we do have them. So I would imagine that we'd have to, within the trade union movement, we'd have to seriously look at ourselves if these numbers are going up uh, and, and say, look, we have to we have to find the courage from somewhere to say no we can't do this anymore and we're not going back in and we're going to be lambasted for it in 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 the media in the press and everywhere um but when are we when are we ever not lambasted well not if there's enough of us like you know mm. between parents united martina bros group 125,000 yeah. members there mm. isabella and all the different students mm. we have to now start i don't care what you can call it whatever you want we don't care about what we're saying, we, the way to really do this is to actually bring back the division that was caused by the government, in my opinion, that it was caused by the government, this massive division between teachers and parents and teachers between teachers and all the usual. We need to really bring everyone together. And I think that's by acknowledging some people are okay, that they're happy with schools are safe. Some people aren't. And that's okay. And it's for both sides to feel that way. But for those that aren't, they need to be given the option instead of forcing them into something where they potentially could die. Mm. And that's the, the reality. That, 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 that is a huge risk, Olive, absolutely. And that is the reality too. But the other reality is that those who choose that they think it's, it's okay and they want to go into school, um, then they are going to keep the virus, you know, going throughout Only if the mitigations are right. So yeah, because I suppose if there's, if there's less going in, there's 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 less chance of that happening. Not just that; it's not just less though. It really is down to like I've so I've looked at some of the best research in the world on when schools can be safe. That is only when everything applies. That mm. is the two meters at all times with masks, with ventilation, with testing, with tracing, mass testing, proper actual randomized mm. testing. The, even if the community transmission side, they can actually keep their schools quite safe. Mm. We're not doing any of that in Ireland. Yeah, so that's 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 what needs to be. We're happening. not doing any of that. Yeah, so. when, when when I say 
when I'm talking about unions closing schools, people are probably going, oh, geez, here they're off again. Closing schools is their only answer. It's not. It, no. it's, to it's to close the schools to get precisely what you're talking about. Yeah. It's to take action to try and get that. And that's what we need to be get doing. Get it to be You all deserve that. Yeah. Who yeah. doesn't deserve yeah. to be safe in their workplace? Yeah. Or the, plan is, the, plan is going to be, the plan is going to be vaccinations that will save the day. That's the plan. Yeah. Well, and actually. Whoever, whoever gets infected in March, well, so be it. That's going to be the plan. And um, by I mean, everything that comes out of the senior politicians is vaccinations, vaccinations, vaccinations. Mm. And that's, I mean, if, I mean, we as teachers obviously have to turn up unless it's, you know, a union directive, but I, I feel that even the unions themselves um, may sort of refrain from, from, um, doing as you as you were saying there and John that could be wrong now I'm just this is just my own opinion on it but I think that all the all the as I said earlier all the eggs are in the vaccinations basket mm. and it's you know it, the vaccinations are working but whether that'll be enough it, March is a very risky month for, uh, for all of us who are involved in education definitely and the reality is teachers are not going to get that vaccination uh, until the summer and children are not going to get it at all. Teachers, teachers, uh, children will be the last to get it, you know. Um, and teachers, uh, we simply set up a system whereby we, we'll be getting it in June and July when it, when the, you know, when the schools are closed, and you know. Various, so it's, it's with new are running a big risk of ruining our own vaccination program, something mm -hmm. which oh, I have learned from ISAG because um, I'm not qualified to talk in the area but they have I have watched everything um, I'm, I'm part of the ISAG team myself I'm a big you know I work at Coonan for a year myself and our girls my, like my husband's had two strokes um, my baby's awaiting heart surgery all my girls have real serious health conditions as do I not to mine isn't too serious but serious enough where I could end up um, in a bad place um, work at Coonan for a year and what people don't realise what cocooning is, cocooning is being indoors all the time. When you do go out, it's in your garden, it's with masks. In the middle of my, my poor girl, her 18th, you know, her three mm. friends, all with masks, they couldn't hug. In August, that's when cases were down. Um, that's what we're doing uh, for a year. It's, it's devastating. And there are thousands of us out mm. there doing this. Thousands of us. All our families and parents united are in that situation where, you know, we've got like people they're trying to protect with life limiting conditions and um, parents who are so if, if they got a little cold, they could get really, really sick. And yet they're told they have to send their kids to school. And, and we have cases left, right and centre. We're terrified of going outside the front door. God forbid there's somebody there. Um, and we're all we're trying to do is protect ourselves as best as possible. And yet, you know, Christmas happened where there was ads on television of a little boy. Is he there yet? Is he there yet? Thinking mm. of Santa and then he's hugging his granddad. Mm. Ads in, on the radio when you're listening to them, please visit your local restaurant and be safe and go. This is when cases were, we weren't anywhere near it. We were ready to go into this massive surge Everybody predicted it. The government said our economy is more important. And then on the 11th of January, the world's highest cases per million in the, in, in the whole world. I, I couldn't believe it when I saw it, but yet it was predicted.
this was going to happen. And right now, it's going to happen again because we've new variants. We don't have the proper mitigations and skills. Scientifically, we just don't. And we've got public messaging where you hear someone on that national emergency team saying, you know, it's really rare for children to transmit to children or to transmit to adults. Well, that is not true. Mm. It's mind boggling. It scares me. And it makes me just feel, you know, as I said, I've spent days in actual tears, feeling helpless. I don't know what to do. So I think this call out on this kind of podcast is, you know what, let us all work together. Be okay that we may may be okay going to work and we may not. But for those who really don't want to, we need to support them instead of fighting them and saying it's okay to be scared. And you know what, we'll we'll help you make that decision. Nobody should be forced into going into anywhere they don't feel okay. Well, Olive, we'll leave that final word with you. It's a, a good finisher, I think. Um, so thank you all very much uh, for coming. Thank you, Seamus. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, Isabel. Thanks, Olive. And of course, thanks to Anthony, who is, um, who's uh, left us. But uh, thanks. I think it's been, been a, a good conversation, a good chat. And we'll, we'll probably do it again in a few weeks if we see what happens with these numbers and so on. Uh, we, can, we can go again at it. Uh, yeah. Thank you, Rob. And thank you very much to all of you for listening. Um, a lot to ponder there from that discussion. Um, a lot to think about over the next few weeks. Um, if you have any concerns and would like to see more done about the current situation, then please do contact your, your union official, whether that be in the ASTI or the TUI, um, and, and see if we can get some movement on the unions uh, here. Um, and leave them know that people are concerned. Um, and yes, we are tired. Yes, we've been... Uh, rolled over as I said in the the discussion by a train but you know we we have to pick ourselves up so please do um, contact your union official and see if we can get something moving on this and parents you can contact Parents United they have a very very good Facebook page and you can contact them there and of course if there's any secondary school students listening please do contact the ISSU and let them know that you would like something done as well in regards to these issues thank you all again